Good morning, church. Last week, we looked at the first of two episodes in Matthew chapter 9 that speak to discipleship. Jesus gave a call of mercy to sinners. And Matthew, the author of this book, responded to the call. He left his tax booth to follow Jesus. Jesus went where the lost were. And he caused a stir when he did that with the religious elite. The Pharisees questioned why Jesus would eat with people like Matthew, sinners. And Jesus' response was, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this week, we come to the second short story on discipleship in Matthew 9. And like the first, there's controversy. So let's stand together and read Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Again, Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Please be seated. And let's pray. Lord, we eagerly desire to understand your word. We know that only the Spirit can make that happen. So we pray that you would move in our hearts today. Mold us and shape us to your image, Lord Jesus, by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Nobody here will be surprised to learn that God has a good sense of humor. Well before Ed and Judy told me they wanted to get married on October 1st, I had planned to preach this text today. And God fits things together that we would not have expected. And it wasn't until the start of this week that I realized that our text today was about Jesus, the bridegroom. That's what he calls himself, the bridegroom. It's a metaphor or or image that he uses to help his audience, to help us understand what our response should be to him. Jesus did not come to earth to leave things as they were. He did not come to maintain the status quo. He, He came to bring change even religious change. And in our text today, we see that Jesus brings religious change in two ways. First, he brings it personally. Now, first of all, we shouldn't be afraid of the word religion. A religion is just any attempt to worship a God, and what we do is certainly that. The authors of the Bible weren't afraid of the word, neither should we be. Now, with that said... We should always keep in mind that our religion refers to more than mere ritual, amen? Which our text today hints at. We enjoy a personal relationship with the God that we worship in our religion. Matthew starts the story off with one of his favorite words. It'll come up time and time again in this gospel. Then. He wants us to understand these two episodes as related, coming right on the heels of the other. In Matthew 4... Verse 12, we read, Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Since that time, John the Baptist had been locked up in a cell. 
John had spoken out against Herod Antipas, who had taken his brother Philip's wife. So Herod had him locked up. You'll remember from last week, Herod Antipas was a regional governor over the northern area of Galilee. And eventually, Herod would have John killed, but we'll learn about that more in Matthew chapter 14. Even after he was locked up, there were still men who called themselves disciples of John, carrying out his mission of calling the nation of Israel to repentance. John started a reformation movement in Israel at the time of Christ, and these men were a part of that. And interestingly enough, there were some who continued to only follow John after his death, for a couple centuries, actually. We even meet a disciple turned Christ follower in Acts chapter 18, whose name is Apollos. Now, it was not John's intention to start a movement bearing his name, and he would have bristled at the thought of people calling themselves disciples of John and not following Jesus. After all, you'll you'll remember, he was there to witness to the coming Messiah, the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But people will make an idol out of anything, even good things. And they will find every excuse not to follow Jesus. And to be fair, these men are associates of John while he's still alive. And we don't know if they come to follow Jesus in the end. But we hear from John again in chapter 11. So we know he's alive during this time. And John's disciples are probably responding then to the same thing the Pharisees were responding to in last week's text. You'll remember what that was. It was the feast at Matthew's house, Matthew the tax collector. But their problem, the disciples of John, their problem wasn't who Jesus had dinner with, like the Pharisees, but that he didn't fast like they did. They ask, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? We can imagine this question being asked in two ways. We can hear them asking it judgmentally, right? Good Israelites fast, and you guys aren't fasting, so why not? Or we can hear them asking it earnestly and genuinely. Jesus, help us understand why you don't fast while we do. And sometimes we're a little bit too quick to assign poor motivations to people, especially those who seem to be opposing Jesus in the scriptures. But I'd rather hear some generosity and genuine interest in their question, even if in the asking they align themselves with the Pharisees who become a symbol of hypocrisy in the Gospel of Matthew. Pious Jews fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays which was a practice started by the ancestors of the Pharisees as one of the many rules that they required to be considered really religious, really pious, really good and sincere. But in the Old Testament, we only see one prescribed day when fasting was to occur, and that was the Day of Atonement. So these twice-weekly fasts weren't exactly biblical. But Jesus doesn't respond to them in that way. He doesn't condemn them for that. We might imagine us responding, well, you're not doing something biblical. I'm being really biblical. But he answers a different way. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? His response is simple. Just as it would be absurd for the wedding party to ritually mourn during a wedding in the presence of the groom... So it is absurd to mourn when Jesus is present. 
Jesus is the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom is around, it's time to rejoice, not time to mourn. Now, many commentators see this as a very important Christological moment. Jesus talking about himself as God. You see, God calls himself Israel's husband in the Old Testament quite a bit. One example is Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. That imagery of God as Israel's husband is throughout the prophets. We talked about it in the book of Micah. The whole book of Hosea is all about God being Israel's husband. And so the image of the bridegroom was often applied to the coming Messiah. So when Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, he's not just using a metaphor for how we should respond to his presence. He's also saying, I'm the long-awaited Messiah, the bridegroom. And the New Testament picks up this imagery, especially in the book of Revelation, where the consummation of history is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in John chapter 3, John the Baptist even says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And so in this metaphor that John the Baptist uses, he likens himself to the best man at Jesus' wedding. Is Jesus using John the Baptist's language for his disciples to help them understand? Probably. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that will purify and strengthen his bride, the church. Amen? But this doesn't mean Jesus' disciples never fast. He goes on, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. This is the first time that Jesus makes a public statement about his death in the Gospel of Matthew. And I bet it was jarring for his hearers. The disciples will slowly come to grips throughout the gospel with this truth. But until now, they've only enjoyed Jesus' growing popularity and an ever-present joy with him and an expectation of his continued prosperity. I wonder what passed through their minds when they heard these words. There will come a day when the bridegroom is taken away. Which doesn't fit very well with the metaphor Jesus is using. Bridegrooms don't get taken away. They receive a bride. But Jesus fully applies the title of bridegroom here to himself and says, he will be taken away. Indeed, he will be taken to the cross. And between his death and resurrection, the disciples did their fair share of mourning. And some understand Jesus' words here to be a reference to his ascension. They've used this text as a biblical proof for structured, regular fasting. But when Jesus talks about his relationship with the church after his ascension in the book of Matthew, he always implies his presence. In Matthew 18, when Jesus is talking about church discipline, he says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst them. And again, in Matthew 28, in the famous charge to the church, Right before his ascension, he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is present with us now by the Spirit. Today, in this room. Which means we should rejoice in the presence of the bridegroom. Amen? Now, does that mean Jesus never wants us to fast? 
No, the point of Jesus' response here is that our relationship towards God, listen carefully, our relationship toward God should not first be marked by solemn piety and mourning, but by joy and gladness in his presence. Sometimes fasting is a good thing for us to do. And something of note here is Jesus' use of the word mourn instead of fast. Both Mark and Luke use the word fast in the telling of this story in their Gospels. But Matthew uses the word mourn, which, which fits a little bit better with the analogy. But it also tells us something about the nature of fasting. Fasting is a good thing, and we should do it. We've discussed fasting in the book of Matthew before, all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount. There's good reasons to fast. Repentance for sin, seeking the Lord's guidance, giving up certain pleasures to focus on the Lord. But fasting is a mournful activity. It's intentional deprivation. And it serves as a reminder for us that all we need is the Lord. Now, if we do what the disciples of John did and fast twice weekly all day long, we might get skinnier and we might get or feel, we might feel more religious. But if our personal relationship with Jesus is marked more by mourning than it is by joy, then we've missed the point of fasting. That would be like grieving at a wedding. For almost 300 years, the early church was constantly persecuted, constantly. They were fed to lions, burned at the stake, hunted down, some were even crucified. Martyrdom became an important part of early Christianity. Martyrs were looked at like the most Christian Christians. They were considered blessed by the Lord because they got to look like him in his death. And truly, they were blessed. That is scriptural. It's true. But then, Christianity was legalized. And then, it became the official state religion of the Roman Empire. So then, how would everybody know who the most Christian Christians were if there weren't martyrs anymore? They weren't being killed in the great circus of Rome. So some took to the life of asceticism or intentional bodily deprivation. They moved into the desert and they became hermits. They became known as the Desert Fathers, the most famous of which was Anthony the Great. Now, now the church has venerated these men and women for their purity in their religion and for their piety, and there is no doubt that they loved Jesus with all of their hearts. Some of them, like Anthony, even founded communities and practiced discipleship. But is that the life Jesus has called his followers to. There are times in our life when we're called into the desert of affliction and deprivation, times of suffering and persecution. But at the end of the day, the life of a Christian should not be measured by their solemn piety, their downcast face, and their regular fasting and self-deprivation. It should not be measured by their Efforts, even efforts to harm themselves and seek separation from community, those are not the most Christian Christians. Rather, our personal relationship with Jesus in community with fellow believers should be marked by joy and our growth in the fruit of the Spirit and in our peace with Christ. We need to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 
verses 17 through 18. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so when the, when the Lord brings you to a time of fasting, a time of affliction and mourning in your life, do it in secret, Jesus says, between you and God. Above all, seek joy and contentment in Christ, who is our all in all. Now, I'm not telling you to put on a mask of joy. Act like you're happy. Rather, the, the fruit of the Spirit is something that wells up from inside of you. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So even in affliction, even in suffering, we find contentment in, in Christ, which overflows outward. Even in mourning, we see Jesus as all we need. Amen? The disciples of John asked Jesus why him, he and his disciples didn't fast. Jesus' first response sought to change the personal religious practices of the people asking the question. It was time to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. And now remember, Jesus calls us to mourn over our sin in repentance. But that's not the state he leaves us in. He ultimately calls us to rejoice with the bridegroom. But it seems like they and the Pharisees, John's disciples and the Pharisees, were hesitant to accept that Jesus was the bridegroom, that he was Emmanuel. <clears throat> so imagine being invited into the party, into the presence with Christ, to the feast, and saying, no, I like the fast out here. I prefer my own approach to righteousness and piety. What a bummer. How horrible would that be? But many of us are left in that state. Unless our personal religious practices are changed by the love and joy of the presence of Christ, we too will be left out of the party. Second, Jesus brings religious change structurally. In further response to the disciples of John, Jesus gives two short parables, verses 16 and 17. In, verses, in verse 16, we read the first parable. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And in verse 17, we find the second parable. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and then the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And then Jesus doesn't explain the parables. He doesn't decode them. He doesn't even do that for his disciples. So we need to rely upon the guidance of the Holy Spirit here and do some really careful Bible reading to find out what Jesus means for us. The parables are similar, similar in meaning, and their differences are in their emphases. Both parables take their examples from the everyday life of a first-century Jewish person. And they're both told in the negative, meaning Jesus implies their absurdity when he says, no one and neither. People don't do these things. The first parable invites us to imagine a piece of valued clothing in need of repair. How would you go about doing it? The best way is to find a piece of similar cloth to use as a patch if you really wanted to preserve this piece of clothing something that's ready to be applied. But in this example, the unshrunk cloth is not appropriate for patchwork because it does not match. It's incompatible. 
The unshrunk cloth, literally in the Greek, is more like unfold cloth. Is a reference to a piece of cloth that has not been folded by a fuller properly. It hasn't been washed and combed and pre-shrunk. Most of us are removed from that kind of metaphor in our world, but this would have hit home with Jesus' listeners who had to patch their clothing all the time. If you place a patch like that, unshrunk, on a garment that has been worn and washed many times, then once that patch hits water and undergoes regular wear and tear, it will shrink and pull at the patched seams, creating a bigger tear in the fabric. So instead of mending the garment, the patch ruins it, makes it worse, even harder to patch afterwards. But if you patch a garment properly, both the garment and the patch will be compatible. In this parable, the garment and the patch are incompatible. So the parable boils down to this. Jesus and the system, the religious elites built up around the law, are incompatible. Jesus is not trying to start a simple reformation movement like John the Baptist. That would be like putting a piece of unshrunk cloth on a worn out garment. It would cause more harm than good. The second parable also talks about the new corrupting the old. New wine cannot be put into old wineskins. Again, this metaphor is easily lost on us. We don't have wineskins hanging around. We can barely picture what they might look like. Usually, a whole sheep or a whole goat was killed and the hide was tanned and sewed up at either end. And then it was used to ferment wine. The whole skin was filled up with, with new wine, which is unfermented wine. And when wine was done fermenting and ready to be consumed, the wine skin, unless properly treated, would quickly dry out and become brittle and unusable. And so it would be incredibly foolish to take that used up, dried out wine skin and try to use it again to ferment new wine. Because once the new wine expanded from the fermentation process, the brittle old skin would rip and burst, ruining both the wine and the skin. Jesus says, no, we don't do that. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. So both are preserved. If you want a successful fermentation, then you need to use fresh wineskins that could handle the new wine. Okay, so what does all that mean? Jesus is the new wine. The pharisaical religious structure built up around the law is the old wineskin. Once again, Jesus is incompatible with that structure. But he goes further in the parable. A new structure is needed. The old could not contain the new. Jesus was not just another prophet who called his people back to where they had been. He wasn't just a a reformer figure. He was the priest of a new covenant. He came to inaugurate a new era. This gets a little tricky So stay with me. In Matthew 5, we learn that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. We remember that? So we can't interpret this parable to mean that Jesus wanted to throw out all of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, or the law in general, and bring something brand new or unforeseen. Jesus' life and teachings are perfectly consistent with all of the Old Testament. 
It's been Matthew's program to demonstrate that fact throughout his gospel. The Old Testament points to Christ in every way. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, and he is the greater Moses. The book of Hebrews outlines that explicitly. In Hebrews 9.15, the author calls Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. And when there is a new covenant, there is necessarily a new priesthood. So Jesus is not a priest in the line of Aaron. The author of Hebrews tells us he is the eternal priest in the line of Melchizedek. The old Mosaic covenant was always going to give way to the new covenant inaugurated in the blood of Christ. Always. That was always God's plan. He is our great prophet, our high priest, and our eternal king. Stay with me. My point is that all of this is consistent with what we find in the Old Testament. All of this was foretold of. Jesus didn't show up in Galilee and say, oh, I guess it all needs to change. This was the plan all along. The problem, the old wineskin, was the structure built up by the religious elites of Jesus' time, the Pharisees, even the disciples of John. That structure was out of line with God's revealed truth. The old wineskin represents all of the religious structure built up on the foundation of the wisdom of men and not on the foundation of the revelation of God. Jesus' fulfillment is incompatible with the project of the Pharisees and their approach to religious piety, to being good Jewish men. Their old, worn-out attempts at interpreting Scripture and following the law were not what God had designed. Jesus came to upend that whole approach And so he calls us to a new structure, a new approach, fresh wineskins. And so that's worked itself out in history. At first, the Jesus movement, the way, was a small sect within greater Judaism. They met in the temple. They followed certain kosher laws. They were mostly made up of Jewish people. But very quickly, the church differentiated itself from Judaism, especially after the temple fell. They had different places of worship. Gentiles were were fully equal with Jews in the grace of God. And as the years rolled by, the church became something entirely distinct. New structures were built to encourage and expand Christ's influence on the world. The gospel was brought to every corner and every people group was called to join. The new wineskin, the new wine rather, of Christ's life, death, and resurrection necessitated new religious structures that worked out his teaching in real time. And we today in this room are a product of that historical working out. But structures, religious structures, are in constant need of maintenance. So the church must constantly be seeking that reformation and renewal. The new wineskin of the church is preserved as long as it remembers the new wine. Let me say that again. The new wineskin of the church is preserved as long as it remembers the new wine. One thing we have to remember is that the Pharisees had great intentions. 
They wanted to see people follow the law. Remember, the history of Israel in the Old Testament is a story of constant failure and idolatry and exile and return. But the Pharisees wanted to end that cycle. And in some ways, they succeeded. But even with good biblical intentions, their structures failed because they failed to anticipate Jesus the Messiah, the suffering servant. In the same way, the church has built up structures for worship. But unless we have an eye toward the will of God, we will end up being a worn-out old wineskin. The reformers of the 16th and 17th centuries understood this. So they had a favorite Latin slogan for this principle. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda. The church reformed, always reforming. We must always be brought back to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Once we lose sight of the scriptures and the new wine that Jesus brought, we will find ourselves as old wineskins. Heaven forbid that's true for this church, amen? So it isn't constant change just to change. It isn't change just to get new people. It's constant refocusing on the words and life of Jesus. So what does that mean for us individually? Just as it is the role of every Christian to enjoy the presence of Christ as the bridegroom, so it is the role of every Christian to participate in the new structure of the church where the new wine is stored. Heaven forbid we get worn out because we lose sight of Jesus. No, we have experienced the grace of God in Christ because of the cross. Attempts to justify ourselves like the Pharisees through our good works are irrelevant. They are the old wineskin. The cross shows us the new wine. And it is by faith that we participate in it. And we commune with one another as we're all united to Christ by the Spirit. And it's local manifestation, the church, the local church, this gathering, and our relationships with Christ communally are the body, the outworking of that new structure in time. We get to participate in that. We become the new, fresh wineskin. It's a gross understatement to say that Jesus brings change. Duh. But sometimes it's helpful to see exactly how he brings change. And this text shows us two distinct ways. The new covenant community founded in the gospel could not be contained within the old system built up around the law. It exploded outward to the world in grace and Christian freedom. And the church is the fresh wineskin for Christ's new wine. And each one of us are called to participate in it. It's grace-filled, glorious, new structure created by Christ for us.
But Jesus doesn't just bring structural change. He brings profound personal change. He calls us to experience and enjoy his presence. So if you have uh, labored under the assumption that your solemnness, your sorrow, marks you as a good Christian, let go and approach Jesus Christ in joy. It's not true that Jesus leaves you in a state of self-loathing and mourning. Mourn your sin, yes. Receive his grace then. Receive his joy and peace and then come into the wedding feast and rejoice with the bridegroom. In fact, we get to rejoice in the bridegroom today as we take communion. We get to enjoy a picture of the wedding feast to come when we sit at table with the bridegroom as his bride. Praise the Lord. This is something we get to enjoy together today. All Christians are welcome to participate in the bread and the cup. All and only Christians, I'll remind you. And if your heart is in a place today of mourning, a place where you are consumed by the guilt of your sin, first bring that sin to the cross, laying that sin at the feet of Christ, who paid a sufficient sacrifice for it, and then receive his joy. Amen? Let's prepare our hearts and do just that now as the ushers come forward. Lord, we are so grateful to you that you brought the new wine of your life, death, and resurrection, the new wine of justification by faith alone. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us this morning in your word. And as we partake of these elements, Lord, we ask that you would draw our attention to you. Your word says that Every time we partake of it, we proclaim your death until you come. So that's what we do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Here at Lake Morton, we pass out the bread first, which you're encouraged to take all together with us. I'll lead us in that. And then we pass out the cup as a separate thing. We do that intentionally so that you can be aware of the communal aspect of the Lord's Supper and the personal aspect that Christ's blood was shed, not just for us corporately, even though that's true, but you personally. So I'm excited to take this with you. Ushers, please come forward.
Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to reflect on your body 
and on your blood and the sacrifice that you made for our sins. Lord, we worship you and we thank you. We confess that we are not worthy. Lord, that we, we sin so much. But Lord, we are so overjoyed in your grace. Lord, we look at the cross and we are reminded of our sin and then we are reminded of your goodness. And we rejoice in that this morning together. In Jesus' name, amen.